Hello, I'm Mariet Smeyman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Introducing you to a wide range of wellness professionals ready to inform and inspire. Today's topic is Shifting Conversations About Aging, Retirement, Ageism and Intergenerational Programming. My guest is Yaku Hoffman, Professor of Socio-Gerontology at Northwest University in South Africa and Professorial Fellow at the Oxford Institute of Population Aging at the University of Oxford in the UK. Welcome, Yaku. Many thanks, Mariette, for having me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. To our listeners, after our conversation, Yaku will give us his three tips on adaptive aging, and then it will be fun question time. Yaku, every person on earth who lives long enough is going to become part of the group called older persons. But aging is a sensitive topic because in our culture, growing older is generally associated with decline, loss and a host of challenges. Now, you and I recently attended a think tank called Shifting Conversations About Aging which is an initiative of the Mind Moves Institute. And this think tank was aimed at looking at aging and retirement with fresh eyes and finding new ways of working and living. Uh, Before we consider some of the concepts that came up that day, please tell us more about the work you do. Many thanks, Mariet. I'm, as you introduced me very generously, um, professor of social gerontology uh, based at Northwest University, but also with an affiliation um, to Oxford. So we look broadly at um, trends in population aging. Um, The specific program at Northwest University, on which I will focus, aims to explore aging across the life course, um, as well as its impact on the relationships between and within generations, on both the familial and the societal levels. In our program, we do not look at aging on the individual level as such, more familial and societal. So, so contextualized within the diverse realities of Africa, you know that Africa is huge and diverse. Mm. Um, our researchers focus, amongst others, on what are the realities of older people within their family settings. Oh, Mariette, families are so important in Africa. You, you know that we do not have all the long-term care systems and programs that people do have in Europe. So we look at the position of older people within families and also the intergenerational relationships, relationships between older persons, their children, their grandchildren, and even their great-grandchildren. The second thematic stream that we're interested in, and I refer to that, is long-term care systems. Um, We look at health care and social care at the nexus of informal and formal care systems. We're interested in care recipients, in this case, older persons in need of care, frail older persons. But we also look at the care providers, the carers, you know, their training and so forth. And the third um, thematic stream that we're interested in is the trends um, regarding inclusion or exclusion of older people how older people negotiate 
their inclusion and exclusion in terms of survival and citizenship. And, you know, with this, we mean, are they discriminated against? How do we deal with that? How are they included or excluded in terms of technology, especially mobile phone technology and other technologies and so forth? So these three streams, family and intergenerational, long-term care systems, and the third one, inclusion and or exclusion. I hope, you know, this, uh, this gives you an idea of what we're doing. Oh, yes, it does. And I fully realize that we're only going to scratch the surface today. Yes, you know, and I want to add that we have the most amazing doctoral students working on these different themes. And um, when, you, when you hear the topics, you know, it will make it uh, more um, clear and bring it home. I'm sure. Jakke, why is it so important to talk about ageing? Mariette, oh my goodness, we can talk about this for ages, but if I could emphasize two issues, it would be just because it is a universal developmental process for each and every individual from conception. The aging process starts. It's normal. It's part of us. It's who we are as human beings. And it is important to talk about aging because, you know, we can't othering it. You can't say it's them and us. Each one of us will get there sooner than we think. I am pro-aging, Mariette. I want to age with intelligence and grace and dignity and verve and energy. I'm not anti-aging. I embrace the aging process. You know, to put it more bluntly, like an uh, um, older lady mentioned to me the other day, I've earned my wrinkles fair and square. <laughs> the other reason why we, we have to think about aging, so the first one is it's part of us. It's who we are. The second one is on a higher macro level, and it's about the demographics. You know how uh, populations age, uh, population dynamics in the world. We all know that there are around 8 billion people on the earth. But we are interested in how those 8 billion people are structured. And we know for example, that the world's population is growing older at a tremendous rate. Mariette, for the first time in history, as we speak now in 2023, we have more 65-year-olds on the face of the earth than under five-year-olds. This is the first time in the history of humankind. And it's a huge achievement. You know, we landed on the moon at some point. We all know uh, the amazing speed of the development of technology. But a lesser uh, spoken about achievement of humans, especially in the 21st century, is the fact that so many people live so much longer. So what is behind this, Marit? There are three things behind this population dynamics, this demography. The first one is lower mortality. People die later. 
In other words, to put it more positive, people live longer. And this is the amazing achievement. But there's a caveat. You could live longer, but with limited functional abilities and capacities. Or you could live longer in health. So it's of no, um, no significance if you live a long life, but it is in a certain sense a life plagued by disease and limited fun functionality. Um, so we want people to live longer lives, but healthier lives. And, and therefore, uh, Mariette, the United Nations and the WHO declared the decade of healthy aging, it will range from 2020 to 2030. So the focus will be to sensitize people, not only older people, but also young people, because what you invest in your diet and exercise and so forth regime um, will make for you to have a healthier life across the life course. So that's the one dynamic driver in the whole issue of population aging. The other one is um, lower fertility. Less children are born. And that, this is a phenomenon across the world. Mariette, even in South Africa, we see this trend of lower fertility. There's, of course, a peak in teenage pregnancies and fertility, but the general trend is lower fertility. And when these two things come together, these two phenomena, Lower mortality, you live longer. Lower fertility, less children. And it happens at the same time, you get more older people and less children. And that is the aging of populations. The third driver in this dynamic is migration. And you all know, you know, rural urban migration, and then older people stay behind in the rural areas. And so you have this bulge of older people in rural areas, young people in the cities. But you also get it internationally. And so many of our listeners will know children and grandchildren all across the world and the impact of that, you know, in terms of care and so forth. So let me summarize. Why is it important to talk about aging? It's part of us. It's me. And the second one, on the more macro level, we are dealing with this fascinating dynamic of population aging across the world. Thank you, Jaku. This is really the clearest vision I've had of this landscape up to now. And I must say, I love the expression that you say you're pro-aging. Yes, because there's a whole movement, you know, the anti-aging movement. Yes. And they see the aging process as a disease. Mm. We don't want to go that way. Maybe I should just add with this why we should talk about aging. It's individual, of course. It's on the macro level. But, you know, we also experience it in families, interestingly. For the first time on the, in, in the history of mankind, we will have more generations living together than ever before. We talk about the verticalization of families. You know, you will, for example, where you had in the past three generations living at the same time together. Now, with longevity, you could have up to five generations living at the same time. And Marie, just think about 
the impact of that on families. For example, inheritance. How long a child needs to wait then to inherit, for example, and, and you know, experience that intergenerational transfer of wealth. To give you an example, how long had poor King Charles to wait to become King Charles? True. Almost 75 years. So, you know, that, that's the impact within, within families. And, you know, as societies, obviously, we need to think about pensions, medical insurance, housing, the upping of the so-called retirement age the structure of the workforce, who's going to do the work, long-term care, and so forth. That really is such a wide, so many themes we have to pay attention to. Jaku, I want to know which term one should use to refer to people in the later developmental phase of life. Mariette, that's a controversial one. Uh, because, you know, it's a social construct. It depends on where you are, what your context is, and that will determine um, how you will be perceived. You can look at, at aging or that phase, you know, from different perspectives. Of course, the laziest and the easiest one is that we use chrono- a chronological definition. Huh? Yes. So 60 and above or 65 and above will be called uh, old, to put it bluntly. Or you could look at it from a sociological perspective, your role. Um, for example, we know, because of the teenage pregnancies, that you know in South Africa and in Africa you get grandmothers, and they're aged around 42, I think that's the mean age, and they will be seen as old. But let's get to the term that I think we should ideally use. I've now tried to just explain how many different angles there are to look at age. You know, terms tend to be convenient to categorize, but we can suffer stereotyping through their generalization and the lack of specifics. Thus, using the term elderly for a person who is robust and independent, just 60 and above, as well as using that same term, the elderly, for a person who is frail and dependent, says a little about the individual in his or her context. Since older individuals become more heterogeneous with age, a specific descriptor such as elderly is inaccurate and misleading. For example, if I ask you to describe an 82-year-old woman, it will provoke little agreement and much discussion based on personal experiences. Because, Marie, you know, an 82-year-old woman could run marathons. Mm. But from another perspective, at the very same time, concurrently, 82-year-old woman could also be bedridden. So which is the accurate description? Are they both elderly? So we prefer to indicate this diversity to use older people, older persons, older individuals, older adults, and older year indicates kind of a a relativeness and diversity. So just to take you back, if we think how older people or 
the elderly in some cases are categorized. Currently, it's from 60 to 100. Mariette, it's 40 years. And you know, we can't clump all these people together and term them as the elderly. Not only elderly, the elderly. You know, even with adolescents, you categorize them as early adolescents, middle adolescents, or late adolescents. And so with the term older, we relativize and diversify, in a certain sense, on the basis of the context in which you look at the particular person. So older then, to indicate the relativity of who is considered old, if you want to. Um, it depends on life expectancy. You know, older in Sweden could be something totally different from older in Niger, in Africa, because of the difference in life expectancy. Mm. You can look at the social role, as I explained, with a 42-year-old grandmother. So chronological age is very arbitrary, but we need it, um, whether we want it or not, for the sake of policies and, you know, to somewhere also do some comparative work, you know, to uh, compare the quality of lives between different countries and different regions and so forth. So let me conclude this. So we prefer older persons, but another interesting thing is we also use the concept, the third age, and that's roughly from around 60 to 75 years. The first age is childhood. The second age is young adults, adults. Um, and the third age, 60 to 65, but with the whole dynamic of um, increasing longevity, we are now at the fourth age, and that's 75 years and up, might be 100 or 110. And maybe in the next 30 years, with the increase of centenarians, we will have a fifth age. Mariette, let's just say the term elderly is ageist. Right. And talking about ageism, in our culture, outdated perceptions regarding issues such as race and gender have been transformed. So, at the think tank, we spoke about it being time to let go of ageism. And Yaku, how would you define ageism? Mariette, I think that's also quite tricky because it depends on culture and context and so forth. But I would broadly say ageism refers to the stereotypes prejudice, and discrimination towards others or oneself based on age. Let me explain. Ageism refers to how we think about a person on the basis of age. Ageism refers to how we feel towards another person and about another person on the basis of age. And ageism refers to how we act towards others or ourselves based on age. So if I, if I could summarize today, ageism refers how we think, how we feel, and how we act towards others 
or myself based purely on age. And there are many ways to categorize ageism. Um, I'm just going to give three examples. Um, terms that describe where ageism takes place include the first one, institutional ageism. You know, that's the type of ageism you will find in an institution like a hospital, where ageism is perpetuated through the institution's actions and policies. It's very formal. Or ageism might take place interpersonally, you know, in our interactions uh, between each other. Or um, it could also take place within you as a person, internalized ageism, where you internalized beliefs about age and um, where you apply them to yourself. You know, <laughs> we do it almost subconsciously, huh? So you get a pain in your knee or you forgot your key somewhere and then you immediately think, oh my gosh, I'm getting old. You know, it, it comes kind of spontaneously because you internalized this whole issue. Maybe I should just add, Marie, ageism could also be, you know, towards young people. Oh. You could argue that this person that we now interviewed, oh my goodness, no, you know, very uh, well trained and so forth, but I think he or she too young for the job. So broadly, ageism is to discriminate on the basis of age as a chronological number. And with that, I would like to conclude this. You know, I find it so interesting in South Africa that, for example, my mother never minded anybody called her Gogo or Gok, you know, at the filling station. But she did mind if at a supermarket, the cashier will call her Granny or Omar. So it's a, it's quite a quite a tricky thing. Uh, also, again, a bit of a social construct. In our research, we we find, and I'm sorry to say, within the medical profession, a lot of ageism. So talking down to a person, you know, that kind of baby talk to older persons. That 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 is ageism. Sometimes I think, Murray, um, that. Even the names of some of our frail care centres oh, yes. are ageistic. Mm, <laughs> so, true. Yeah, you can imagine what they are called. Yes. That leads me to my next question. At the Shifting Conversations about Aging Think Tank, we talked about advertisements that portray older people in a negative way. Would you like to talk about a recent example? Yes, obviously I will not call people out or name names. Mm -hmm. But this particular advert had a very, very strong and good message they wanted to portray. And you can imagine, as a bank group, they wanted to portray the idea of um, saving for your later life and how important that is. You know, with that message, we have no problem at all. You know, we all have to plan financially and also, of course, mentally for the later phases in our lives, like, you know, actually for each and every phase in our life. But in this case, they used a restaurant, as an example, 
as a context. And all the waiters in this restaurant were older people, older waiters. And they were all depicted as feeble, you know, muddling orders, unable to work the point of sale system, dropping things and being generally just, you know, slow. And this is, you know, the typical stereotyping of older people um, or older workers. This was also reinforced by a specific focus on hearing loss, you know, that this older waiter couldn't hear the order placed and so forth. And um, the point we want to make is that this is not on, because actually older people generally are this particular bank's greatest source of clients and investment. So what do we want to say? We want to say, with regard to this example, we categorically state that a willingness or an ability to work, even at an older age, should never be ridiculed. Nor should holding a job as a waiter ever be shamed. Ageism punctuate on the same level as racism and sexism. And Mariette, you know, in general, marketing agencies and corporations shy away from portraying women, people with an obvious disability, people from previously disadvantaged communities, and the LGBTQ individuals in such ways. They will never do it with these groupings. Actually, anti-discrimination efforts across financial services have predominantly focused on gender and racial equality issues. And in both these areas, great strides have been made towards a more fair and more diverse workplace. Why then do that with older people and specifically older workers? And, you know, that brings us uh, to another point. The idea that older people are frowned upon if they keep on working. You know, as if all older people should lead a life of a passive existence or a life of leisure. You know, that's particularly poignant if you think that on average, we all might live for another 30 years after mandatory pensionable age, after so-called retirement. Thank you, Jaku. I think what you have just said will create a lot of awareness. I want to ask you, worldwide, the baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964 are creating that population bulge that you refer to. What does the situation look like in Africa and in South Africa? We are so different. <laughs> um, you know, we live on this wonderful continent where there's always something new from Africa. But just to get back to the baby boomers, Mariette, before, you know, we deal with Africa and the situation in Africa regarding older persons. I find, you know, these categorizations of generations or the tagging of generations quite problematic. For example, you've got baby boomers, you've got Generation X, Generation Millennials, and what, what, what. Because, Mariette, I think, you know, it's more contextual. This is very Americanized, these categories and, and so forth. Our world in Africa, for example, is so different. 
you know, what had the most impact on this particular generation, 1946 to 1964? And that will be apartheid. So, you know, other than the American older people, most of our people would have experienced the cumulative effects of a political system. Um, you can think about the Ukraine. What will have the most significant impact on, on those generations? It will be the R- Russian-Ukraine conflict. So um, although we global citizens, I think this general tagging is quite quite problematic because it denies context and and life events and so forth. But getting to the African story, yes, Africa is a young continent. And Mariette, Africa will be the youngest continent for the foreseeable future. So Africa is population-wise young. And um, is that bad? Not necessarily. So we've got a young, dynamic, potential workforce if we can only skill them and get our education system going. So let me give you a, a few numbers. I don't want to overwhelm you with numbers. So today, around 60% of Africa's population is younger than 25 years. So where in the rest of the world, they've got this um, older person's bulge. In sub-Saharan Africa, we've got this bulge of younger people, 43% under 15 years. Mariette, listen to this. Within 20 years, around 2035, Africa's potential labor force will be larger than China's. Goodness. And can you imagine the opportunity? If we have a skilled workforce in Africa they could have amazing opportunities across the face of the earth, this old world. So point is, it is important to think about aging and older persons in Africa in the context of the youthfulness of this continent. You know, often people at conferences will ask me, do people in Africa grow old? And of course they do. Although the shares are small, the percentages, the absolute numbers are amazingly big and large. You know, we've got around currently... Um, 75 million older persons in Africa. And in just the next 30 years, that will increase to 235 million. Listen to this. Now 75, in 30 years, 235 million. Currently, in South Africa, also a fairly young population, we have 6 million older persons. But in 30 years' time, that will double to 12 million. But it will still be a small percentage. Marie, just think, 6 million older persons in South Africa currently can be equated to some European countries' whole populations. Um, Think 12 million. That is a lot of older persons. So although Africa is a young continent population-wise, 
there are huge numbers, absolute numbers of older persons. And now the question, Maria, is do we have the systems in place? Because in Africa, who cares for older persons in need? The family. But these families need support. We really need to get our house in order um, with regard to long-term care systems. How do we support families caring for older persons in need within our communities? Because we can't accommodate them all in institutions. That's, that's impossible. And that is why, Marit, we're very interested in the intergenerational aspects. Because can you imagine you go to a policymaker and you tell them you want to do this and this and this for older persons? And the first question they ask you, what is the percentage of older persons? And you say 9%. What will they tell you? No, you know, there are so much more to be done with regard to younger people because they this huge, huge percentage. So what do we do? We focus on the absolute number, 6 million, 12 million. That's huge. That's a lot of people. And that changes things. So we always use intergenerational programs and the intergenerational way of doing things as an entry point because older people um, in Africa are not isolated from their families and you know, other generations, younger generations and so forth. So the story of Africa is an interesting one. We're a bit of the, the odd region out, but also very exciting. We can provide the world with workers. I just came from Japan this past weekend, and their crisis is, where will we find workers? And although Japanese older people are very active, you know, up to the point they can't do anything more and they're frail, they need to keep their economies going and, and so forth. The same with China. And that, that will be the opportunity for Africa. Thank you, Yaku. That is really fascinating. And now we're coming to the topic of retirement, which is in fact quite a complex phenomenon. Where did it originate? Maria, it's fairly modern and recent. If you think you know about um, where we come from, and it's it's 18th century, and prior, there had been a long practice in the Roman Empire to provide a pension to those who served in the military. Because you can imagine, you don't want your older generals to turn against you. You have to, to give them something to keep them loyal. But, but I think the, the big impetus was with Bismarck huh? in 1881 in the 19th century. And um, he drafted a formal request to the emperor to look kindly upon those who are disabled from work by age and um, in validity and have a well-grounded claim to care you know, from the state. So this German welfare program provided then a contributory retirement benefits and disability benefits to people. Um, participation in, at that point in the retirement system was mandatory and contributions were taken. You know, as we know from the employee, the employer and the government 
And so the Western world followed this model. And obviously, you know, in South Africa, those of us that are privileged to be in the formal sector, we experience this same model. Up to a certain point, you reach a pensionable age. It was first 70 and now it was reduced to 65 at, at, at a certain point in Bismarck's time. So, and then you retired. Now the question, Mariette, is, is that in view of the longevity revolution, more older people, less younger people, is that in view of a young continent like Africa, where most people are in the informal sector? You know, you really have to work up until the day you can't. You won't ever earn a pension. Is the concept of retirement relevant? I did a workshop with a Pan-African Parliament about the policy architecture in Africa, and we have a very progressive policy architecture. I'm very excited about it. Um, it was approved last year by all the heads of state. But then one lady mentioned that she's from the Ivory Coast, and they've got, can you believe it, in that small country, about 70, 70 dialects. And not in one of those dialects, they've got a word for retirement. Point is, maybe because I don't think we're going to change this. Maybe we should make a clearer distinction between a pensionable age that will probably be 60 or 65 or now 67 in Europe, and I think it will uh, be raised to 70 eventually, Maybe we should make a distinction between that, a pensionable age where you need to take up your pension, and a retirement as a concept. Do we need to, to ever retire? You can take up your pension, but then reinvent yourself and uh, complement your pension through all kinds of ways, you know, and that's up, up to the individual. And that asks for a lot of creativity. Or maybe you can take up your pension and then get involved in voluntary work. Or maybe, you know, just spend more time on your hobbies. I just doubt, Mariette, whether you could play golf forever. I don't think um, so. You know, for your whole 30 extra years. So I personally just think, well, we, we should consider more productive ways. Of course, golf is important, um, but also more diversity in my reinvention. And, you know, the beautiful thing of reinvention is that you can be very flexible. You can do it as you want to do it. And of course, not to mention grandchildren. You know, what's beautiful in South Africa are all these older grandmothers looking after their grandchildren. So South Africans in the informal sector are generally productive up until the day they, they just can't. Mm. Uh, because of physical inabilities. Jaco, you've mentioned intergenerational programming. What is intergenerational programming? Yes, you know, in, in a certain sense, Marit, intergenerationality or intergenerational dynamics are quite spontaneous, you know, within families. There's this relationship between the generations in the private space. 
it comes with all, you know, its baggage, you can imagine, and um, histories and so forth. But, you know, that happens. Radcliffe Brown, the very famous anthropologist, noticed the spontaneous intergenerational dynamics here in Africa when he did some field work, especially between generation one, the grandparent, and generation three, the grandchild. And how spontaneous that dynamic is. And he then termed it as the joking relationship. You know, it's different from the relationship with one's parents, because the parents are supposed to discipline and, you know, give a Mm. framework and so forth. But with grandparents, you know, there's this totally different relationship. So that on the one hand. But then, Mariette, we've noticed all over the world that there's also the need to formalize this intergenerational dynamic. Because somehow in the Western world, and increasingly also in Africa, generations tend to live their own siloish lives. You know, grandparents are in the rural areas, children and grandchildren in the urban areas and so forth. And so Sally Newman, Professor Newman, started formally this program in the United States where older persons were introduced to younger children, um, learners, in schools. And they built these relationships within the classroom where the older person will be kind of a mentor, um, supporting children with learning um, problems and so forth. And now it became a huge movement. And I actually co-authored with Matt Kaplan and Mariano Sanchez a book on intergenerational communities and another one on intergenerational contact zones. You know, where could this happen, this intergenerationality? And of course, it happened in churches, but we have to differentiate between multi-generational and intergenerational. You know, sitting in church, listening to a sermon, and there are children, middle generations, older generations, that does not necessarily mean intergenerationality, where people build a relationship between each other. For example, churches need to seriously consider programs on intergenerational dynamics, where they consciously plan for older people and younger people to engage uh, more constructively. And it's an, it's an equal engagement. There's a lot of reciprocity within, within this dynamic. So, so where we see this working quite well is, let me give you this one example, in the field of technology. So, Mariette, you know there's this digital dividend. Older people do have phones. My gosh, you know, almost every older person in South Africa. But they do not always know how to use the higher functions of a phone. Mm. And of course, you know, our students and grandchildren are so streetwise and savvy <laughs> with the technology. So, so what is an obvious thing to do? Because in our research, just to step a little bit back, we found a lot of tension within families when older persons ask children and or grandchildren to help them with their phones. You know, no patience, 
And most of the time, it, it ends up in a bit of a conflict. And there's a lot of negotiation going on and so forth. And so we realized if we train young students, university students, to be professional in their attitude and really focus on serving these older persons with their knowledge and so forth, it works so much better. Because in the first place, you haven't got all that family baggage. In the second place, they are supposed to be professional and they are trained. And we did a few of these projects and it works amazingly. So my dream, Marie, is to get funding somewhere and to do a huge community project around older persons, technology, and intergenerational programming. The idea is, you know, to create kind of a, a university of the third age, uh, where people do not need your books and to write exams and what, 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 but where they can build relations through the mobile phone as an intergenerational contact zone. And then, Mariette, this works, you know, on two levels. On the one level, there is the in-person, face-to-face interaction between, say, the student and the older person around the phone. But then also, once this older person gets a grip on this phone, the virtual contact, of the older person with their grandkids and so forth. So this is what intergenerational programming is all about. It's a brand new field. We've got a journal that was established in 2003, but I have to say quite difficult to plan. You know, Mariet, if I think back, churches often will take children as part of an intergenerational activity to an old age home, a frail care center. But I just think, is that the best way to introduce young children, you know, even toddlers, to older people as only, you know, these frail older people in frail care centers. There are so many other ways in which you can do this. Eventually, I guess it could be a good project, but not as a first introduction to older people, I think. You've been taking so many of my preconceptions today and turned them on their heads, Yaku. And I really hope that that there's someone who's listening who might be interested in getting involved or fund this type of intergenerational programming project that you've got in mind. Oh, that will be fantastic. <laughs> yes, and we'll come to, you con- to your contact details just now. So I really believe we need to have these ongoing shifting conversations to make mind shifts in the way we regard aging. In conclusion, could you offer us your personal thoughts? Oh, Mariette, I've got so many. But, um, you know, in one of my favorite academics, a psychologist, he passed away, and I had the privilege to listen to his last lecture. Uh, Paul Baltus said, many older people decline not because they have exhausted their potential, but because insufficient demands are made upon them by themselves and by others. And so if I could offer three keys, it will be stay connected, your social relations, whether it's with friends, uh, whether it's grandchildren and children, so intra- and intergenerational 
just stay connected. We now have enough evidence, research evidence, that people with good social lives, connected lives, linked lives, are healthier people. The second one I want to offer is keep sharp. Keep on learning. You know, the whole idea of continuing um, education. And with technology, there are so, so many possibilities. And the third one is love your heart. And with that, I want to say, get the blood pumping, you know, exercise and, and eat correctly and so forth. So stay connected, keep sharp, love your heart and make demands on yourself and allow others to make demands. You know, we live in a country where there are so many opportunities to make a difference. Thank you, Jaku. Where can listeners learn more about your work? We've got a website um, at Northwest University. So if you Google Optential, Optimal Potential, it's kind of an acronym for Optimal Potential, OP, and then Tensia, Tensial. Tensia, Optensia, and there you will find our work. Or maybe just, uh, just Google Yaku Hoffman. Right, and I will also see which links I can connect to the podcast. Yes, and I will also send you some links to an open source book, the book that we wrote on age-inclusive innovation with regard to mobile phone technology. Thank you, Jaku. And just to our listeners to explain, if you are listening to this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, any of the platforms that it's on, and you want to get to the podcast notes where you'll find these links, just look under the links on the platform that you're on and you will find the link to the podcast notes there. Now, Jaku, before I let you go, may I ask you a fun question? Yeah, I hope it's fun. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, fun in the sense of stretching your imagination a little. You mentioned that you've returned from a trip to Japan. And now we're going to the realm of the imagination. In an ideal world, Yaku, is there any aspect of Japanese culture or perhaps a Japanese landscape or cityscape that you would love to have access to right here in Johannesburg? Oh, yeah, I... I... Yes, I'm so uh, you know, impressed with their food. Mm. Oh, gosh. But then, Marit, you know, I think I've got a little bit of access because I love art and specifically ceramics. And so I stumbled upon this little village, Tokoname, and it's got, it's this pottery village, this ceramics village, you know, from the 12th century. And I saw this most beautiful sculptural piece of ceramic. And um, I bought it on, you know, the spur of the moment, mm. not realizing what a heavy, heavy piece it is. Oh, no. So I slopped through Japan, <laughs> but it is here and it, it found its little space. You know, so I don't even have to imagine too far. Um, so the food and the beautiful, beautiful artistic abilities of the Japanese, you know, in a, in a certain sense, very minimalist. 
and essential. Thank you, Yako. I'm now very curious about that piece of ceramic you schlepped through the Japan. <laughs> and thank you very much for providing these many insights today in such a lucid way. Um, I think the whole landscape is much more detailed and more extensive than I ever imagined, but I have a much better idea of various pieces and how they fit together, although I know that there must be many more. So thank you very much for your time and for your expertise. Thank you, Mariette. You know, yeah, yes, we just scratched the surface. Mm. Um, and we we came a long way, but we still have a long way to go uh, regarding research on, on older persons and aging research. Certainly. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to this podcast series and rate it where you download your podcasts. And if you found this episode insightful, please share it with someone you care about. Go to my website, www.marietsneeman.co.za for this episode's podcast notes and for free articles and podcast episodes on how to live a happier life and have more fulfilling relationships. To follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneeman Journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me with original music by Mark Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 